Amen. Good morning. Um, so, yeah, we're carrying on uh, the series in Acts, and um, we decided we were going to do Acts um, a while ago, and then um, we broke it down into sections, and then Malcolm did the kind of sharing out of who was going to teach what sections, and um, I'm not really quite forgiven him yet, but this is the section that he get, gave me, he put me down for, um, and um, this morning we're talking about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, so, why don't we read it? And then, we'll, uh, and then we'll see where we get to. Um, so it's um, in Acts um, chapter 4, starting verse 32. And it says, um, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Great. So, I was so delighted with Malcolm when he put me down to speak on this topic. And then, I, so for a long time now, I've just been going, "Oh my goodness, Ananias and Sapphira, what do we, what do we teach there? How do we pull that apart? How do we get into that? I don't even know what I'm going to say." And the good news for you is, I've spent a lot of time looking into this and reading it and studying it and thinking about it and praying about it, and I've got loads to say, and you'd all be delighted. So. Um, I mean, this story is an, is an unusual story, isn't it? It's, this story is this church, and the church is fabulous. It's the early church, and everyone is together, and there's, there's, everyone is entirely united, and everyone's all in. And they, as and when there's need, people will sell a piece of land, and they come, and they give all their money. 
and then it's shared and no one has any need because everyone's needs are met. What a fabulous picture. And then it reads a little bit like a parable. It's not just a story, it actually reads like a parable. Because in the same way that Jesus would tell a parable and go, oh, firstly there was this man, and this happened, and then there was this man, and this happened, and Jesus would kind of frame a story. That's exactly what Luke is doing here. And he starts by going, well, this is what used to happen. It was this great picture. And, and then there was this one man who we call Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, Hint, this guy's a good guy. We pick out nice nicknames for this guy. We like make up names for this guy that are really encouraging, really nice, and make you feel good about himself. And he brought, he sold a field, and he brought it all. Fabulous. And then there was this other guy. Also sold a field, did the same thing, but kept some of the money back. And Peter challenges him. And says, why have you done this? Peter gets some sort of divine knowledge of what has happened. Because I don't think, I'm certain, Ananias didn't come in and go, I'm giving it all. By the way, I'm keeping a bit back. He didn't do that. He presented it as if this is everything. I'm giving it all. But he didn't give it all. He held back. We don't know why he held back. Maybe he wanted to give it all. Maybe he started out with really good intentions and then he sold the land and he's going, oh, I want to do that. And then he sold the land and then he kind of went, oh, but I could do with a bit of this money. What if it's a rainy day? I could do with a bit of security. I've just got this thing that I could really do with sorting out. I'll get most of it. I mean, maybe he didn't start out with this evil, cunning plan going, I know what I'll do. I'll sell my field, but I'll only give a bit of it and I'll keep some of it back and then they'll never know and they'll think I'm the greatest guy, but I won't. Maybe he didn't start out with this evil plan. Maybe he started out with really good intentions. But it just didn't quite end up that way. Fear kicked in. And he didn't do it. So Peter challenges him. says, why have you done this? Did you not understand it was your money all the time? Even when you sold it, it was yours. What are, you, what are you trying to do here? You're not just lied to us, you've lied to God. Bang, dead. Quite dramatic. And some guys from the congregation go, that's our cue, walk up, wrap his body up, take him off, bury him. I don't know which team that was. Was that the welcomers or was that the youth workers? Or I'm not really sure which, which team does that when that happens. I'm not, I'm not quite certain. But anyway, whichever team it was, so that's our cue. Step up, wrap him up, take him off. And they're outside burying him. And then Ananias and a Sapphira arrives. And Peter says, he hasn't got a clue. It's three hours later because this is a long church service. Be grateful, people. Three hours later, she walks in. And she has not got a clue. And he goes, that money that you gave, was that all of it? And she's going, mm, yeah, yeah, that was all of it. Probably feeling a little bit nervous. And then Peter says, oh, you know, your husband just dropped down dead. And the same team that took her out, they're just coming back in time to take you out and bury you. Bang, she drops dead. So, I was thinking, what do I call this? What do I call this talk? What's my title this morning? And I came up with this. Give, or God's going to kill you. (laughs) 
It's the only real takeaway from the passage that I could think of. Like, you know, it's like, give or else. You're going to die. Don't come here giving a little bit. Give it all or you're going to drop down dead. Because we believe in positive, life-firming messages here. Wisely. But then I thought maybe that was a little severe. Um, so I came up with this. Quit holding back. Because we hold back, don't we? We hold back. And sometimes it's for really good reasons, or it can seem very rational. A little bit of common sense kicks in, or a little bit of fear kicks in, a little bit of pragmatism kicks in. And we might have set off with really good intentions to go and to give all of this money, or to serve in this way, or to pour ourselves in, or to be really involved in this church, but then maybe someone said something, and I just don't feel the same way about it. Maybe someone offended me, or maybe... Ooh, you know, like I would give more, but I've just got this bill coming in. You know, like your son's just getting married or whatever, and the bill's racking up or whatever it might be. You might go, oh, I'll not give it all. Maybe I'll just hold back a little bit. Or you decide that, well, I was going to give, but actually, you know, I'm not entirely convinced by, what, by the way they're distributing that money. I'm not entirely convinced by that person's need that got some money, and I, you know, I don't want it to be ripped off, so I'm just going to hold my money back. <coughs> can sound really sensible, can't it? can sound really wise, but we're holding back. And this kingdom is not about holding back. Quit holding back. So let's get into this passage a little bit. When you start looking out there and going, so what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira? Just put the search engine in. You'll be amazed by the amount of stuff that's out there. So what's going on here? The question I came up with was, so who killed Ananias and Sapphira? What actually happened? It's a bit like a who done it. We've got a few options here. Going down to the theological world, there's a few options about who did the killing here. You know, there's some people who are going very clearly, well, God killed them. God killed them, it's very obvious, you know, they'd sinned, God killed them. The problem with that, firstly, it doesn't actually say God killed them, it just says they dropped down dead, and then it says Peter said that she was going to die and she died. So it doesn't actually say God did any of the killing. The other problem with that is, it's kind of very Old Testament, right? And, you know, God's going to kill you and smite you and wipe you off the face of the earth if you do something wrong. Which isn't, when you look at what Jesus was talking about, about this kingdom and how this kingdom was going to be and this place of inclusivity and this place of power and transformation and this place of love and this place where everyone was welcome. And, and when, when, you, when you hear Jesus talk about that, you go, well, I don't know if this fits with that God. We looked for a long time through the Gospel of Mark and to see what Jesus was like and what, what Jesus revealed about who God is because we come to an understanding that God is revealed by Christ. So when we look at Jesus, we get an understanding of what God is like. And Jesus didn't go around killing people when they lied. And there were a lot of people who lied around Jesus. And Jesus didn't go around smiting them and killing them. In fact, he went around raising dead people back to life. So it does seem a little opposite to what we've seen about what God is like. And when you look at Scripture, 
Jesus is the lens that we should be looking at all Scripture through. So it's a little problematic, maybe, this idea that God struck these people down because they lied. Because I don't know how, you know, if we kind of went, okay, God, you know, we're, we're up for that model of church. How many of us would make it out without the assistance of the welcomers team with their blankets wrapping us up? You know, we're probably going to struggle a little bit, aren't we? I can't say with all integrity that I've not lied at some point or misled at some point or done something like that hasn't been all in. I haven't held back at some point. I can't say with all integrity that I haven't done something not dissimilar to what Ananias and Sapphira did. Are we really confident about that? Is our giving up to scratch? Is our obedience up to scratch? Is our truth and integrity up to scratch? Or do we want Jesus to bring in this model of tell a lie and you die? Are we up for that? But that's not what we see happening in the church. This idea that God killed Ananias and Sapphira, you know, there are a lot of people who go, well, that's very clear, that's what it is. And there's a lot of people who go in, I just don't know if that fits with what we know about who God is. You know, if sin is covered on the cross, which was the point of Jesus, right? The penalty for sin is paid. Then is God really going to be going, oh, yeah, okay, well, I've dealt with the penalty of sin, but I'm still going to kill you. It doesn't fit, necessarily. So what are other, other options? Well, biology. There are some people who go, it's just a happy coincidence. As, as Peter challenged, his heart failed. Now, not just a happy coincidence, he was always going to fail at that point, but maybe under the stress and the duress of being called out. Maybe his heart wasn't so good. Maybe Sapphira was overcome by shock and she died. Maybe it was a biological reaction to the situation. There's a few people who think that. Not an impossible theory at all. Satan. Now, there's a, there's a stream of theology which say, well, actually, what's very clear here in this passage is Peter says, Satan has got, your heart has been consumed by Satan. And there's other po- points in the New Testament where Paul would talk about handing people over in the flesh to Satan so Satan can do his work on them so that they might be saved ultimately. That actually the work of Satan is to hide, to conceal, to destroy, to kill. And that's what's going on here. And what Peter does in his challenging is to release them into the hands of Satan and that's what and Satan kills them. There's certainly justification in the text for that reading. The fourth option is Peter. Because Peter's the one who challenges, and certainly with Sapphira says, you're going to die now, and she dies. Is Peter using the gifting that he's been given by God, the authority which he has as leader of the church, as a follower of Christ, as the rock on which Jesus will build his church, the authority he has as an apostle, the authority that he has as indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the gifting that he has, is he using that 
but on this occasion actually using it to condemn and kill rather than to bring life and freedom. Peter is known to be a little hot-headed at times through Scripture. Is he acting in step with the Spirit? Is the authority which he has in Spirit, and he sees the sin, he sees the, the brokenness, he sees the damage, he sees the, the risk, and he calls them out. And in his authority, the authority that he carries in Christ, when he speaks out death, death happens. It's an interesting idea also. Well, not, and I'm not suggesting whether he was right to say that or wrong to say that. There are some people who say either of those. A, that's a whole other derivative of the question. Who is it that killed Ananias' fire? And I don't know. There's, there's arguments for all of those. I think it's interesting, this idea of authority that we carry. And that's something that we might come back to in a little bit. I think one of the things to understand here, there are, there are three areas that I want to talk about now. The first of those is that this is a sin issue. Now, I know when, you, when I talk about sin, when anyone talks about sin, some little flags might go up for us, some ideas might kick in to our mind and to our brain. What do we understand when I say this is a sin issue? You're going, oh, yeah, okay, so there's rules and God's punishing, God's condemning, God's, you know, we have to go to hell and... That's not what I'm talking about, sin. You know, any of you who've read my book will know that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about sin. What we're talking about when I talk about this being a sin issue is sin isn't the breaking of a rule and therefore God must punish you because I've broken the rule and the only consequence for that rule is that I have to die. Sin isn't a legal framework as such in that sense, or it's not the most helpful way, I would say, to, to think about it. The more helpful way that I find to think about sin is sin is all the ways in which I'm disconnected and less human than I was created to be. The stuff that distorts me and shrinks me, the stuff that disconnects me from God or disconnects me from people, the stuff that's been spoken over me that gets into my head and those tapes that play that tell me that I'm not good enough, that tell me that I can't do it that tell me that I'm a disappointment, or that tell me that, you know, whatever, it, whatever those tapes in your head say to you, that stuff that's been spoken over you, that stuff that's been done to you that shapes you and distorts you and deforms you and makes us live out less, makes us less human than we were created to be, makes us more disconnected and broken, and in this situation, we see Peter saying to Ananias, your heart has become full of Satan. Like this sin has got into you. And it's corrupting you. This, and when we think about sin as disconnection and dehumanization and brokenness, it's the stuff that gets in our way and pulls us apart and distorts us. It breaks apart our, our wholeness. And this is, in this issue, this is one of the things that's going on. You know, they're living out of the not enough. 
Instead of giving it all and being all in, they're holding back because some fear has got in, some, maybe some desire to be like Barnabas or some desire to, to be more. Or some, the greater concern is how they're viewed by their other Christians, the other members of the church, rather than living out what they're called to live out, living in the fullness of who they're called to be. Sin is an issue. And we see a parallel in this story. So this is a story that happens right after, the, after Pentecost. The church is established. A new thing is happening now, a new church, a new kingdom, a new movement. And we see right at the beginning this incident happening where somebody sins, somebody acts out of greed or need or sin or selfishness or whatever, however you want to phrase it, and they die. Which has parallels with the Old Testament. And as the Israelites had come out of slavery and they're into freedom and they've gone through the promised land and they're just going into the promised land. They've crossed the Jericho and they're going to the promised land and they defeat Jericho, they cross the Jordan and they defeat Jericho. And God has said to them, take nothing from the city. But there's one guy called Achan who sees some stuff and decides that he likes it. And in Joshua 7, it says this. Joshua spoke to Achan. My son, give glory to God, the God of Israel. Make your confession to him. Tell me what you did. Don't keep back anything. Don't hold back at all. Achan answered Joshua, it's true. I sinned against God, the God of Israel. This is how I did it. In the plunder, I spotted a beautiful Shinar robe, 200 shekels of silver and a 50 shekel bar of gold. And I coveted and I took them. They are buried in my tent with the silver at the bottom. And when this is confessed, then he is taken out of the community and killed. Right at the beginning of something new, right at the beginning of Israel being established in the promised land, right at the beginning of this whole new thing, sin gets in and distorts and corrupts. And the consequence of sin is death. We don't see people dropping or dead in the church today or on the streets because they've sinned. But maybe sin is a, maybe sin works differently um, to that. Maybe this is a, an illustration, a parable, an allegory. I'm not suggesting it's not true and didn't happen, but it's, a, it's an illustration, it's an allegory for us of what happens in this new movement, when we allow sin to get in, death follows. Maybe not dramatic death dropping on the floor, but death in some way. You know, I don't believe God is in the business of punishing you. The price is paid. The cross has happened. The penalty, the price has been paid. God isn't in the business of this God who wants to vindictively go around punishing people. And so when we, and I don't know whether you've thought whether there's some suffering going on in your life or some hardship going on in your life, and sometimes that thought comes into your mind, doesn't it, where you go, oh, it's because I sinned, doesn't it? It's because, you know, God's punishing me because I did this wrong or I did that wrong or I didn't do this or I didn't do that. Have you ever had that thought, sort of thought process? I know I have a number of times. And you kind of, you link this with that and you go, something's going wrong here. It must be because I sinned. God is punishing me. But we saw in Mark, didn't we, that God, Jesus revealed God not to be the God who afflicts, 
but the God who heals. Not to be the God who kills, but the God who raises from the dead. So it doesn't fit. God isn't in the business of punishing you. And when that tape plays in your head, God's punishing me because I've done something wrong. It's not true. Denounce it. God doesn't do that. God is not in the business of punishing you. However, your sin might be killing you. Your sin might be killing you. Because when we allow sin to get in, when we allow attitudes to get into us, whether it's greed or pride or jealousy, unforgiveness, hate, enmity, opposition, thinking of people as le- other people as less than us, worse than us, judging other people, when we allow that stuff to get into us, it eats away, it hardens us, it corrupts us, and ultimately, it kills us, it shrinks us, and destroys us, because that is what the enemy does, that is what Satan does, he comes to steal, and destroy, and kill, and sin does that in us. God is not in the business of punishing you, but your sin might be killing you. And if there's something in you that you just haven't been able to shake, and whenever it comes to something about giving, or being generous, or forgiving, you shrink and you pull back, you harden. You become cynical. You justify your lack of all in. You justify your lack of giving, your lack of generosity. You justify why it's okay for you to judge other people. We'll even find scriptures to tell us to justify why we can judge other people, even though the Bible says do not judge. But we'll find the scriptures that back us up. Because we harden and we shrink, and our sin is killing us. And this is the parable of this story. As well as being a sin issue, this is a heart issue. Another parallel that we see here, you know, we've been given this story where two people, they both gave One of them was acceptable, and this guy's announced as son of encouragement and talked about for millennia afterwards. The other guy gives, you know? Ananias wasn't not giving. If you're sat here judging Ananias, and you're not giving, you're so far down the scale. It's like, it's ridiculous. Like, this guy's giving, he's sold his property, to get the money to give. And all he's done is go, actually, rather than giving it all, I'm just going to give some. And then he's lied about it. He's doing a good thing in many ways. But his heart's not right. And there's an obvious parallel here with Genesis chapter 4. 
story of Cain and Abel. It says, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil, these brothers. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions for some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And in the same way, Cain and Abel both made an offering. One was good and one wasn't good. One was pleasing to God and one wasn't. The difference was the heart with which it was given. The difference between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira is the heart with which it's given. Because sometimes we can give, but we give out of all the wrong motives. We give because we think we should, or we give because we want to be seen to be giving, or we give because we think it buys us something, or it gives us some power or some influence. And we can be giving, and our heart can be all wrong. This is a heart issue. Which is why Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? What's the stuff you value? What's the stuff you spend your money on? You know, if I was to go looking at your bank accounts, it would tell me what you care about, right? It would tell me what your priorities are, where your heart is. What are the things that we're investing in? What are the things we're pouring our resources into? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You might be thinking, Adam, seriously, like, you know, a bit direct. Ease off a little bit. It's just what Jesus said. I'm just presenting what Jesus said. This is about a heart issue. And what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira is it's a heart issue. You know, Billy Graham um, died recently and he said this. If a person gets their attitude to money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of their life. Probably why Jesus says you can't serve two masters. And probably why he also says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If a person gets that attitude to money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of their life because it can control us and it can distort us and it can corrupt us, can make us shrink. You know, some of the richest people I've known are some of the meanest people, some of the smallest people. And some of the people in the world who have the least are the most generous, are the most joyful, 
are the most beautiful, are the most expensive. Having more doesn't doesn't answer our problems. In fact, I think, riffing now a little bit, Rachel said, read out a quote to me, I think, yesterday from the internet. It said something like, if you're not content today, there is nothing you can buy this weekend that will change that. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? Because we try and buy our way out of our discontent. You see, our relationship with money, I'm not saying money's bad at all, but our relationship with money, how we handle money, how we relate with money is what's important. Our relationship with money can be one of love, blessing, generosity, contentment, or it can be toxic and destructive. The issue is the heart. And that's what this story is about. You know, we're created, and we've talked about this before, we are created to be givers. But we're taught to be consumers. The world tells us that we always need more. If you could just have that slightly bigger house, that better car, that better job, that higher income, that more beautiful whatever it might be, then you'll be. The whole advertising industry is built on the concept of discontent. Not enough. But we are created to be givers, not consumers. When we, and when we, when we consume, it's always insatiable. I always need more. But when we learn contentment, then we're free to give. We're created to be givers. In the Bible, the word believe comes up 272 times. So believing is quite important. The word pray comes up 371 times. That's pretty important. The word love, surely, surely one of the most important words of the Bible, comes up 714 times. The word give comes up 2,162 times. We're created to be givers. This is our, our calling and our identity. You know, I heard a fascinating study um, just recently whilst I was looking into all of this talk. If every Christian in the US and the UK tithed, in five years we would amass enough money to eradicate global poverty. Not every Christian in the world, just the UK and the US. If we all tithed, for those of you who don't understand tithe, that's a biblical concept, 10% of what you have, you give. Old-fashioned word, but giving 10% of what you have is the Old Testament context of that. Every Christian in the US and the UK tithed. In five years, we would amass enough money to eradicate global poverty. Now, you might go, yeah, but we're just a small church in a small town. Like, what can we change? But if think of it, do the maths. If everyone in the UK and the US tithed, that would eradicate global poverty. Therefore, surely, if every Christian in Yeovil tithed, 
we could at least eradicate poverty here. Couldn't we? We could start here. And who knows, the idea might catch on. What if we gave generously? And I know tithing isn't a popular thing to talk about. And we tend to, you know, in all my years at this church, we've always gone, you know, you, we are not compelled to tithe. It's not a God says you must tithe because that's the Old Testament and we're living in grace now. We're living in grace, so we don't, we don't have to do anything because we live in grace. But someone I know quite well made an observation that <laughs> made me think. He said, yeah, but the people who are always kind of going, yeah, yeah, but we're under grace now. Often give less than 10%, don't they? Which is a strange kind of grace. Because grace is always about abundance and more and blessing flowing. Anyway, that's that. We need to move on. So it's also an identity issue. And we're going to fly through this. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And I think maybe Ananias and Sapphira are looking at Barnabas going, we want what he has. We want the praise and the recognition that he has. We want to be honored and admired. And we want cool nicknames too. Like we want to have what they have. But the sad thing about this is when you look into it, Barnabas means son of encouragement. But Ananias means blessed by God. It's also quite a cool name, right? And Sapphira means beautiful. Also, quite a cool name. And instead of looking at Barnabas going, we want what he has, what they could do is go, I'm going to be who God created me to be. I'm going to stop looking at other people and comparing myself to other people and wishing I had, and it'd be easy if I had what they had. And if I was in their shoes, oh, this wouldn't be difficult at all. And if I, oh, I'd give much more, or I'd be far more generous, or I'd be far more loving, or I'd be far more forgiving, or I'd be far more whatever it is that's making you shrink and whatever it is that's killing you inside. It'd be easy if I was them. I want what they have. But actually, what does God call you? And we know that God calls us beloved and God calls us his children, created by God, indwelt by the image of God. It's a phrase that bounces around amongst our kids a little bit from time to time. It says, you do you. You do you. Don't try and be somebody else. Be who God created you to be. And then we can do us. Because we're all part of this. You know, I think we underestimate who we're created to be. We underestimate the authority we have, the power we have, the love we have, the capacity we have, the giftings that we have, the miracles that we can perform. Because remember, Jesus says that you will go and you will do greater things than even I have done. We are created to do the miraculous. I believe God is calling us into a time now to step out more and more into miraculous, to step out in greater authority, to step out and to see more of his kingdom, to step out with greater confidence, to see God move in new ways, to orchestrate new moves of God in our community and in our region and in our nation 
and in our world, in France and in Châteauroux as well. God is calling us into a new time now. And we underestimate who we are. We underestimate what we can do. This isn't just a Christian problem. Elon Musk, founder of Tesla, recently said, yes, excessive automation at Tesla was a mistake. To be precise, my mistake, humans are underrated. Humans are underrated. We underestimate what we're capable of. And when we are indwelt by God, we underestimate what we are capable of. But we need to be all in. You see, we aren't just recipients of this kingdom. We are activists of the kingdom. We are agents of the kingdom. We are called to be people who are living this stuff out. We are called to be all in, not to hold back. We're called to bring everything we are and commit to this community. The image that we see at the beginning of that passage where everyone had everything in common, they were entirely together. No one had any need because everyone gave as there was need. And not just the people in the community, but the community around. Nobody had any need. They were entirely together because everybody was all in. Nobody was holding back. We aren't, see, we aren't just recipients of this kingdom. We're not just people who get to sit here and wait for God to do it. If we think there's going to be a move of God, we're not people who are just going, do you know what? It just happens that it's the right time and God's going to impose himself on this situation at the moment and do something miraculous. No, no. It's down to us. If we want to see God heal, then we need to be speaking out healing. If we want to see God raised from the dead, we need to be speaking out raising from the dead. If we want to see forgiveness happening and pouring out in our community, we, want, we, need to see, we need to be speaking out forgiveness and we need to be forgiving. If we want to see poverty eradicated, we need to be the people who are on the streets, alongside, loving, sharing, all in, giving of ourselves, bringing the miracle into every situation. That's how a move of God happens. See, the kingdom of God comes along one act of love at a time. And this is our job. This is our purpose. We aren't just beneficiaries of the kingdom. We are catalysts and carriers of the kingdom. We are invited to live in this story of abundance, this story of enough, this story of contentment, this story of abundance, this time of grace. An abundance of mercy, an abundance of grace, an abundance of love, an abundance of beauty, an abundance of forgiveness, an abundance of joy, an abundance of resources. This is the time, this is the movement, this is the church we're invited to be part of. So quit holding back. We are invited to live in the enough, to have enough, and to be enough. And those two things are related. If you don't feel like you are enough, you will never have enough. We're invited to live in this time of having enough and being enough. We invite the musicians up now. We're going to wrap this up. We are invited to live in this authority that we carry. You know, if we if we fully grasped the authority that we have in Christ, but you see, authority isn't just a. It's not just a static thing. It doesn't just, well, you have it or you don't. Authority comes through intimacy. Authority comes through relationship. The deeper our relationship with Christ, the greater our authority is to speak out truth and life and forgiveness and hope and freedom. 
the more our intimacy is rooted and deeply in relationship with our Savior, the more we are free to live this out. Authority isn't just a new superpower that we get to carry around. It comes out of relationship and humility and submission to who God is and who God's calling us to be. And yeah, we can use our gifting, we can use our authority, we can use our gifts for good or for bad. But God has given us these gifts, these good gifts, to bring life, to bring hope. We have an authority to speak out life and healing and hope and freedom. Let your words be words that build, not destroy. Let your words be words that free rather than bind. You know, Jesus says, the things you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and the things you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. He puts it in our hands. Are your words binding people, or are they freeing people? Are they shrinking people or expanding people? Are they bringing life, or are they bringing death? Let's be people who flow in this authority to speak out life and healing and hope and freedom. Be people who have an authority to live generously and creatively. Let's be people who quit holding back. Amen? Amen.